Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right. Good morning, church. Let's take out our Bibles today and turn to the book of Micah. I'll give you a minute to find that one. It's a little tough. We're starting a new book of the Bible today, and uh, we're going to be in Micah chapter 1, looking at the whole chapter this morning, if you guys would turn there. And uh, yeah, looking forward to Easter. It's going to be a wonderful time. We're going to have a great time at the Good Friday service. People have already been asking me, are we going to do what we normally do, where you tell the story of Jesus' death and the Passion Week and all of that? And yeah, that's exactly what we're going to do. That's a story we want to revisit each year. And so we're going to think about that this Good Friday and then think about the resurrection on Sunday morning. At the second service, I'm going to be praying for a new missionary that we're sending out uh, here at the church just for for four or five months. Her name is Lily Powers. She's, I think, 18 years old, maybe 19 years old. I might be getting that wrong. But she's going to Thailand to join Pastor Josh, who we sent there at the beginning of the year with his family, to be one of the first student interns that they have. So we're going to lay hands on her and pray for her at the second service. But I don't want you guys to miss out on that, and I thought we could pray for her together in this service as well before we get into the Word. So you you guys there? You guys in Micah 1? You found it already? You guys are so quick. You know the Bible. You know the minor prophets already. You already know what Micah is about. I don't even need to teach it to you. All right. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your Word. We pray that you would speak to us today from it. And Lord, we want to lift up Lily to you. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, second-generation missionary who is answering the call from you. We don't know what this is going to lead to in her future, but, Lord, we're excited for her. And so we pray that you'd fill her with your spirit, that you'd provide for her every need, that you'd help her, Lord, with every ounce and moment of culture shock and homesickness and all of that. And we pray, Lord, on this huge adventure that she's going on, that she would get to experience the spirit of the living God working and moving in her life. And uh, so, Lord, we pray for her. Lord, we now commit our time in the book of Micah into your hands, and we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us from it. We thank you, Lord, and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, we live in an age where many voices contend for our allegiance. Uh, Ever competing perspectives bang around the cosmos, contradicting and challenging the voices that came before them. We're constantly told in our modern time how to think and how to live. It seems as if everyone has a vision of what it would look like if all was right in the world. Uh, One man's New morality is another's abomination. One man's moral majority is another's patience to let that majority fade away and die off. The right side of history for one is recency bias and chronological snobbery for another. The quest to legislate morality for one is a quest to harm humanity to another. People cannot agree on a shared vision for justice, equality, 
or the compassionate treatment of others. We cannot agree on a definition for love or hate or judgment or justice or tolerance or a myriad of other hot button words. People used to talk about making the world a better place and now we have no idea what that even means. And against all these perspectives, the prophet Micah enters the scene. He also has a vision of the good life and a good world. And he spelled it out in three winding oracles found in his book that all begin with the word hear, an invitation to hear, listen to the things I am about to say, Micah is saying to us. His vision, as found in this book, is of a beautiful life, led and centered upon Yahweh and Yahweh's mountain where all people flow to God to hear his law and to live in subservience to it. This revival atmosphere that Micah envisions is one that will lead to times of unparalleled peace and prosperity because Yahweh will in that day be king. It's a world, according to Micah, where God's people finally live in accord with God's righteousness. The perfect meld of worship and witness will one day occur, religion and right living, doing justice and loving kindness, all while walking humbly with God. This time of true love for God and neighbor will bring such purity, according to Micah, such goodness, according to Micah, which will be a direct contrast to the pollution and unrighteousness often found among God's people. And Micah sees it as a life with God as the great shepherd who uses his staff to guide his people, blessing the flock of his inheritance as they graze upon the produce of his righteous kingdom as he forgives and cleanses them once and for all. With this grand vision in mind, Micah echoes forth an invitation to us today to live congruently with the way things will one day be. For those who hold an overly cataclysmic vision for the future world, Micah comes along and forecasts the worldwide peace that Christ's rule will produce. For those who hold an unfounded optimism about life today, Micah comes along and rebukes the unrighteousness in the land among God's people. For those who cannot fathom the necessity of God's judgment or discipline, Micah comes along and demonstrates what his discipline can produce in our lives. And for those who think the world is a despotic place overripe for judgment, Micah comes along and holds out hope for the world's future while calling us to better living today. In many ways, what you will find as we go through the book of Micah is that Micah, like the God he represents, is a paradox to the modern man. He, he thinks like we do, but he doesn't. He feels what we feel, but he doesn't. His thoughts and his prayers are all subservient to the feelings of Yahweh, whom he loves. But why should Christians 
take seven Sundays in 2024 to look at the life and words of Micah, this ancient minor prophet who was around about 800 years before Jesus walked the earth, when we could just turn in our Bibles a couple of millimeters and look at the life and teachings and words of Jesus and his apostles. Well, I think the reason is because Micah is Jesus' word. He affirmed the Old Testament and clearly allowed Micah and his thoughts to inform the way that Jesus himself lived his life and his convictions about God's ultimate purposes in his kingdom. I think we should read Micah and study it because Micah looks forward to Jesus. You can know Jesus all right without Micah, but you can know Jesus so much better with Micah as his oracles bring out dimensions of Jesus that we need to understand that many of us do not spend time thinking about. We should study Micah because Micah explains God to us. Micah's name means who is like Yahweh, and at the very last breath of his oracles, he answers that question. This is what Yahweh is like. The whole book answers who God is, shows us that Jesus is God in the flesh, and this alone is worth the price of admission. We should study Micah because Micah's vision of Jesus' future kingdom is so breathtaking and so astounding and so astute that Christians of every tribe and nation and tongue can find hope in his oracles. And we should study Micah because Micah echoes Jesus's apostolic messengers in the New Testament. I think of the book of Micah like an Old Testament version of the book of James, exhorting us to live just and holy lives and taking care of people who are in need. I think of the book of Micah like an Old Testament book of Ephesians, calling us up to live according to the identity that we have in Christ. And I think of the book of Micah like an Old Testament gospel of Matthew, telling us about the coming of the great shepherd king who is meant to rule our lives. And that's the shepherd king that is going to inform the way that we look at this book together. I think of the book of Micah as the call of the shepherd king. What what do I mean by that? Well, throughout all of Micah's prophecies, we're going to encounter a figure that repeats himself over and over again. Uh, this figure is both king and shepherd. And one day, Micah prophesies, he will lead God's remnant flock. Uh, Micah in chapter two is going to destru- describe this figure as the breaker who demolishes obstacles so that his people can get to his desired destination. He's going to be described by Micah in chapter four and five as a ruler who will come from the ancient of days, born in Bethlehem, who will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And in Micah seven, we learn that he will shepherd his people with his staff since they are the flock of his inheritance. In other words, taken together, Micah envisioned in his prophecies a divine shepherd He will also be king. 
He will call his people to repentance, to justice and revival while extending rich mercy and grace and forgiveness towards them. In other words, Micah envisioned Jesus, the true shepherd king. And so today in Micah's first oracle, we're going to hear that the shepherd king is ready to act. And so let's start reading this book together. Now I'm gonna give you a little warning here at the beginning. Uh, Fasten your seatbelts. There's a lot of judgment and a lot of discipline in the book of Micah. I was talking to a mentor of mine this last week. He's like, what are you teaching this Sunday? I said, we're starting the book of Micah. And he's like, oh. And he said, yeah, people need that too. (laughs) You know, this is the vegetables (laughs) Uh, the, this is the protein. This is, this is like important stuff for us to get to, but there's some serious discipline here that God is going to bring. I almost wanted to start the teaching by reading to you guys from the very last verse of the book of Micah because it talks about the Lord being gracious and merciful and long-suffering and forgiving. That's who Yahweh is, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't sometimes discipline his people when they are ripe for his discipline and judgment. So let's read verse one through four together. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Verse two, hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down in a steep place. Okay, in these opening words, We start with this superscription found in verse one. It describes the historical situation that Micah was in. I don't wanna press the details too much, but these historical details are important to understanding the book of Micah. The broad overview of Israel's history is that after the Exodus, which we just spent a few months studying together, they eventually made it to the promised land. There was a delay, a 40-year period of time in the wilderness, but once in the land, they were meant to be a kingdom of priests. Remember this, Exodus 19, a holy nation, a light that illuminated Yahweh to the world. And once they were there in the promised land, after a long period of trying to be that, but also a long period of moral decay, Eventually, they began installing kings in Israel to lead them. Uh, Their second king was a guy named David. He wrote a bunch of the Psalms. We love David. It's the story of David and Goliath, an amazing man. And David received a promise from God that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. That descendant, of course, we know him as Jesus Uh, But they didn't know that at that point in history. They just knew this promise that God had made to David. Now, after David's death, his son Solomon 
expanded the kingdom and built a glorious temple for Yahweh. But if, if anybody thought that Solomon was going to be the one that sat on the throne of David forever, they were disabused of that notion when he collected a harem of foreign women and began turning to worship their false gods, introducing idolatry again into the nation. After Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam was such a disaster that the northern 10 tribes broke off and they started their own kingdom. That northern kingdom became notorious for the idolatry that emanated from their capital city. It's mentioned in verse one of Micah one, Samaria. They literally worshiped golden calves up there. Like it's just so hard to believe. Like did you guys read the book of Exodus? It's like really down on the golden calf worship thing, but that's what they did in the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom, with Jerusalem as its capital, was eventually infected by the idolatry of the north. But by the time Micah comes onto the scene, the southern kingdom, it says in verse one, is on kings number 12, 13, and 14, descending from uh, David. Uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, by dating Micah's prophecies with these kings, it helps us understand the historical context of what Micah is about to say. Before Micah's time, the northern and southern kingdoms both experienced a long period of economic prosperity. Both of the kings in those regions did well in leading the people into opulence. It was a time of expansive wealth, but also a time of expansive spiritual and moral decay. During this time, the wealth gap widened, the rich became richer, and the poor became poorer. The middle class began to evaporate as those rich in power and possessions took advantage of the populace, stealing lands and things like that, as we'll see in this book. A total lack of justice is evident throughout Micah's prophecies and is a mainstay of Yahweh's exhortations through his man. The commandment, thou shalt not covet, is ignored all throughout the land at this time, and Micah steps out to rebuke it. So Micah went to the northern and southern kingdoms with a message. His message is basically this. You guys, God is ready to act. Your idolatry and your covetousness have kept you from being God's special messengers to the world. You're in a covenant with him, one that includes discipline for gross misconduct and disobedience. You've crossed the line far too many times. God has been incredibly long-suffering uh, towards you, but, but now he must act. You've forced his hand. And the way God acted is pictured by Micah with words of cataclysm, mountains melting, valleys splitting open. History tells us how this happened. It wasn't mountains melting and valleys splitting open. It was the invading Assyrian armies, and 100 years later, the invading Babylonian armies coming into the northern and southern kingdoms. Micah's vision was of the Lord coming out of his place to tread upon the high places of the earth, but their boots on the ground experience was war and captivity, which Micah understood as God's discipline at that time on his people. So God will act, but I want to search the rest of Micah 1 for the answers to three questions. Why did God act? Why does he say that he's going to do this 
to the people of Israel at that time. What did God feel is the second question I want to think about. What was he going through emotionally as all of this was unfolding? And third, what did God want? What was he hoping would be produced in Israel as a result of this discipline? All right, for why did God act? Let's look at verse five through seven together. It says in verse five, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. I want you to remember that Micah prophesied to both the northern and southern kingdoms. Uh, Even in this little paragraph that we just read, he talks about Jacob and Israel and Samaria. When you see that in the Bible and the prophets, that means he's talking to the north, Jacob, Samaria, Israel. When you see him talking to Judah or Jerusalem, that's him talking to the south. And here, Micah speaks for God and tells them both that they are guilty of idolatry, syncretism, and adultery. That's why God acted. Their idolatry, their syncretism, and their adultery. I know this is heavy stuff. Even as I was preparing this, I thought this would probably be like a good time in the sermon to tell a funny story or a joke or something like that, but I couldn't think of any, so we're going to keep going. (laughs) Uh, Their idolatry is obvious in the text. In verse 5, it says that their capital cities were like high places. That's where people would go to worship idols. God promised in verse 7 to beat their carved images, those are idols, to pieces and lay waste all their idols. Uh, Their syncretism is less obvious, but it's also in the text. Later in Micah, we're going to learn that these same people were still offering a bunch of sacrifices to Yahweh in Yahweh's temple. In other words, they simultaneously had all these idols and all these high places along with their regularly scheduled programming with God. They were attempting, in other words, to fuse the worship of God with other religions and philosophies that were incompatible with God and his word. And their adultery is also implied in the text. It says in verse seven that God said they gathered their wages and idols from the fee of a prostitute. In their day, Canaanite cults practiced various forms of temple prostitution, literal prostitution that was given a religious uh, label. Fees were paid to temple prostitutes, and those monies were then given to the temple leaders of whatever deity's temple they were in, and those leaders would then produce more idols, and Micah rebukes them for this. What is God saying here? He's saying, I have come to the place where I have to act because there is rot in the walls of my house. You know, if a building has a good foundation, 
but rot in the walls? What do you have to do? It has to be stripped down to the studs and then be rebuilt on that good foundation. God's decision to act was not made hastily, but it's important to recognize that he is a God who is willing to strip things down to the studs when need be. Some of you, as I say this, are thinking about your own life and times where God has done just that to you, where he's carved out or pulled away the rot that exists so that he can get back to the pure and the good and the right foundation that he's given to you. Israel was meant to be on a mission for God, but they were failing in that mission. And God cares way too much for the lost of this world to allow his people to persist in things like idolatry and syncretism and spiritual adultery And so in Micah's day, he addressed the issue with his hand of judgment. Now, what I wanna say here is that I think that many people in the modern church do not react the way that God reacts here in Micah. It's not hard to see rot in the modern church. It's not hard to see problems and issues in the modern church, but I've found that many times people respond in two extreme ways that are unlike what God is doing. Uh, Some want to pretend that the rot does not exist and just kind of move on, business as usual. Others want to throw out even the good foundations and good parts of the structure that the church is built upon. Maybe an example will help you guys with this. Uh, some of you were even around for this, but you maybe as an example, we could consider the purity culture that the church put forth back in the 90s. Uh, some want to respond to that era of the church's life by pretending that the almost like obsession with virginity and purity rings and the desire to kiss dating goodbye all with the accompanying shame and guilt and confusion that many people had when they failed to meet that moral standard. Uh, Many people want to say, that was no big deal. There's no rot in these walls. Let's just act like it was not a problem. But on the other hand, others want to respond by overturning the biblical sexual ethic that God's people have stood on for thousands of years. Let's destroy the building, people like that are saying. Neither approach is wise. Micah shows us a God who is willing to strip his people down to what they should truly be and rebuild them on the same foundations that he has already provided for them. So why did God act? Because of what he saw among his people. Okay, the second question that I want to think about today, though, is what did God feel? What did God feel? That's not a question that we ask very often, but look at verse eight and nine with me. Micah says, for this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. This movement shows us what God felt. Micah describes his own reaction here in verse eight and nine. He says he's gonna lament and wail. 
He's gonna strip himself naked because the wound of the people of Israel is incurable. They've gone past the point of no return. Just as Jesus wept over Jerusalem's rejection on his way to the cross, Micah mourns Israel's rejection of Yahweh. Uh, He even does this cool poetic thing where he associates himself with wilderness animals like jackals and ostriches because the coming invaders would make Samaria and Jerusalem like a desolate wilderness once they were finished. And Micah especially wept because the sin of the northern kingdom had infected their neighbors to the south, reaching all the way to the supposed holy city of Jerusalem. Uh, This is how Micah felt, but when he says how he felt, he's merely representing Yahweh. The, The prophet's did not respond to a stoic God who had no feeling and did not care. No, God is not absent of feeling. The prophets were connected to God's pathos, God's emotion. And God is sharing his feelings and sharing his thoughts with his man, Micah. Even in our passage, Micah and Yahweh are blurred. Like, who is mourning? Is it Micah? Is it Yahweh? Is it, who is it? It's both of them. The the prophets, in other words, were active participants in a dialogue with God. This, This active participation means that God revealed himself to his men, and they, under the inspiration of the Spirit, responded as friends of God would. I think it's here that we should ask ourselves a simple question. Do we want to feel as God feels? Jesus said, There is a blessing to be found for those who mourn over what God mourns. And as Micah looked out and saw that Israel had turned into Panem of the Hunger Games, complete with the opulent capital cities oppressing Micah's district in the valley below, he tapped into God's heart and he mourned everything that he saw. Again, he's not mourning Assyria. He's not mourning what he saw in Babylon or America or Europe. He's mourning what he saw among God's people. God told Amos that two cannot walk together unless they agree to meet. And Micah had agreed with God and was willing to walk in God's heartbroken shoes. This is important. God is not pictured here as seething with rage, He describes himself as long-suffering in Exodus 34. It took him so long to come to this place. The people of Israel had agreed, if we do these things, if we worship idols, then God, you are duty-bound to bring disaster to our land so that we will be corrected. But God waited and waited and waited and sent prophet after prophet after prophet. He is not seething with rage. He's not even lamenting like someone would lament at a funeral because of the death of a loved one. God was brokenhearted because his beloved bride, whom he had done so much for, had abandoned him. He was suffering because of the betrayal of his friend, the unfaithfulness of his bride, and the shattered promise of the people that he had rescued from Pharaoh. Micah is repeating a concept that the first minor prophet started with, the prophet Hosea, that God's people were guilty of spiritual adultery. 
They had entered into a marriage covenant with Yahweh at Mount Sinai and confirmed it at the end of Deuteronomy, but now they had broken their marriage vows. God's people had drunk a poison that now coursed through their veins. They had a wound that was open and stinking and beyond a cure, and as God mourned, so did his man. Again, the question, do you want to feel as God feels? Okay, the last question I want to look at today is, what did God want? You know, you're saying all these things, you're gonna do these things, what does God want? Uh, Let's read it in verse 10 to 16 as we end our chapter today. Uh, Micah writing says, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Bethlehem, roll yourselves in dust, pass on your way inhabitants of Shafir and nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of Zanon, do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Merath wait anxiously for good because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath, The houses of Achzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Moresha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves, verse 16, bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. As you go through the prophets, you come across some fantastic verses that if you just want to mess with your friends, you can send them to them. <laughs> just thinking of you today, make yourself as bald as the eagle. <laughs> I'm willing to bet that uh, if you brought your own Bible here today, there's probably not a lot of highlights and underlines in the little paragraph that we just read. <clears throat> what did God want is the question. Okay, this is, this is heavy Hebrew poetry that we just read. And uh, what Micah does in that little section we just read is he lists out a dozen villages, a dozen cities that were located in a valley to the west of Jerusalem. All these towns were in a little region. They call it the Shephelah. Uh, we're familiar with this region right now because it's on the way from Jerusalem to Gaza. Uh, all these places were near Micah's hometown. Uh, they're, they're a place that when enemy invaders come to them, the enemies always want to take Jerusalem, but to get to Jerusalem, you got to ravage this place first. So, What Micah is doing here is he's warning them, you're about to be a battleground again because of the rebellion of God's people. Now, as he pronounces these prophecies, he does this beautiful wordplay. And what I mean by that is that Micah took the meaning of each city name in the Hebrew and he spun it as a declaration of God's judgment. Like, for instance, in verse 10, he talks about Beth. Leifra, which means house of dust. And then he tells them that they should roll in the dust as a way to mourn what's about to happen to them. Or in verse 11, 
He talks about Shafir. Shafir means beautiful. And Micah told them that their beauty would be exchanged for nakedness and shame. You know, they were about to really suffer. Uh, Zanon in verse 12 means going out. So like these people are free. They can go where they want to go. Micah says, you're no longer going to be allowed to go anywhere. You know, this is the judgment that's coming upon you. The entire oracle is like that. It's a fascinating piece of Hebrew poetry, which I think tells us a little bit about how these prophets concocted their messages. Uh, I don't think of Micah as a guy who's at like an open mic, hip hop, freestyle battle, just saying things off the top of his head. He's at home writing lyrics, memorizing them, coming out, dropping lyrical bombs on the people of Israel. Like this is poetry, this is premeditated. He has thought about this. But as much as he's thought about it, Hebrew experts also tell us that there's something frenetic and chaotic about this particular outburst. It's a brilliant piece of literature, but for those familiar with Hebrew, it's clear that Micah was not able to restrain himself from a near hysterical tone as he's saying these things. It's turbulent, it's intense, it's sorrowful. Micah is still weeping for God's people as he derides these towns. Why? Because he says in verse 16, exile is your destiny. That's what's about to happen to you. And he's broken over it. One day, decades after the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar was gonna come to Jerusalem and carry God's people away into captivity and fulfill these prophecies. So what does God want? The entire passage suggests that God wanted them to repent and recenter themselves upon him. That's the idea of the last exhortation to make yourself bald like an eagle. Uh, the idea is this is an outward symbol of inner sorrow. You're mourning, you're grieving your condition. That's what God wanted. He wanted them to repent of what they'd been and recenter themselves upon him. One clue that this is the case is found in the middle of the oracle where Micah spent a lot longer decrying one particular place, a place called Lachish. Uh, Lachish, we know from the Bible, was a chariot city built by King Solomon and fortified over the years. What that means is that Lachish was a military outpost down there in that valley. And it appears that Israel, as they so often did, had come to trust in their own military might or the military might of neighbors around them rather than trust in God. People often hoped in the armies that Lachish housed or hoped that Lachish could build alliances with neighboring armies that would protect them. But these were God's people. These were Yahweh's people. They were unlike any other nation that ever has been. He'd overthrown the Pharaoh to make these people his own. They should have trusted him forever. So what did God want? He wanted them to turn and trust him again. It's the same old story over and over again, isn't it? The Lord looking into our lives and saying to us, like, hey, how long are you gonna do things your way? How long are you gonna lean on your own understanding? How long are you gonna make your own rules and do your own thing? I want you to turn, and I want you to walk with me. I want you to be the person that I've called you to be. That's what I long for. 
That's what I want. Stop trusting your own strength. Stop trusting idols. Stop hoping for help from elsewhere. Look to me. Walk with me. And the rest of Micah is going to talk to us about what that walk with God looks like. But God had begun to plead with them to turn to him in these opening verses. Now, now at this point, you might begin wondering where the shepherd king that I talked about earlier is in all this doom and gloom. And I just want to encourage you guys, hang on in the book of Micah, because for as dark as he can get, he climbs these mountains of eschatological hope and beauty that are just insanely glorious. So just hang on, he's getting there, but he's going down before he goes up. I told you already that Micah is divided into three big oracles. It's Micah one and two is oracle one, three to five is number two, six to seven is number three. Each oracle reveals the shepherd king in some straightforward ways, but in this first oracle, chapter one and two, that's where the shepherd king is the darkest. Even in this dark passage of doom, though, God declares some shadows of hope. Look at verse 10 as I wrap this up. The first city mentioned is the Philistine city of Gath. That's a place that David once said when Saul died on the battlefield at the hands of the Philistines. David said, tell it not in Gath. Look at what it says in verse 10. He says, tell it not in Gath. He's just quoting David. And then Micah, in the last place he mentions in verse 15, mentions Adullam. Adullam is the place that when Saul persecuted David, David fled for his life and hid in a cave in Adullam. So these bookend places are places where a terrible king did terrible things and David was affected by it. Since they frame our passage, I think God might have been giving a clue that all hope was not lost. Yes, Israel had terrible leadership at this time. Yes, the glory of Israel would depart for a little while, but like David, it would return one day. And return it did in the form of the Son of God who is the express image of God. And the church's shepherd king, Jesus, is calling to his people today, calling to us, inviting us to live consistently with our new identity in him. He will do what he must to make our lives today consistent with our past salvation. Salvation won for us at the cross of Christ, but he will also do what he must to make our lives consistent with our future salvation. He wants life today to be practice for tomorrow. If justice is going to roll in his forever kingdom, he wants us to be a people who live justly today. If neighbor love is going to flow in his forever kingdom, he wants to help us love our neighbors today. And if we run to his mountain to hear his word in his forever kingdom, he wants to help us orient ourselves around him and his word today. In other words, Micah's hope should be our present day vision for life. What Micah sees for tomorrow, we want to live today. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.